This is part two of Pivot Point, the Allen Building Takeover at Duke, a special series from The Devil's Share, the podcast of Duke Magazine. In part one, we heard about the issues Duke's black students faced and how they began making demands of the Duke administration. We came back down to the housing office and said, we need a house close to campus. Is there nothing available? He uh, accused me of having my white roommate of writing my essays for The third is a doctor tonight resigned from the Hope Valley Country Club, which practices segregation. To me, uh, it was like a scene out of Gone with the Wind. Uh, and he said, Negress, sit down. Part two, confrontation. Frustrated by the slow pace of the administration dealing with the issues they faced, the black students withdrew. They were fierce, and though they were few, their number was increasing. After the first five undergrads in 1963, by 1969, the Duke cohort of black students had grown to around 90. Hardly a tide, but a critical mass approached. And newer students had stronger opinions. Then you had the class of 71 and the class of 72. As Chuck would call them, it was the hotheads. All right, so all of a sudden we got this critical mass and, you know, start, that energy started to build up. And then as, as the intellectuals uh, got everything together and, and you know, was taught, you know they, they really had a good platform of what we should do. But we had a certain energy and, like I said, that critical mass that said, okay, we need to do something. And matters approached a tipping point. There was a number of us that got together and said, all right, we're convincing everybody, we're going into the building. And this was not like a Tuesday we said we were going. This was like water boiling. It just got hotter and hotter and hotter. With a typically Duke motivating factor. The turning point for me as an organizer of the thing was when grades came out. Chuck uh, Hopkins. First semester grades came out. And I had people coming to me, black students coming to me who had never participated in any kind of Afro-American society activity. Black students who'd never spoken to me, but, but they came to me and said, Chuck, we need to do something. The Afro-American society had been demanding help for students making the transition to life at a demanding university. Grades clarified the reason behind those demands, galvanizing the newer students. The final push came during Black Week, a cultural enterprise organized by the black students. Protester Janice Williams recalls. So you get to Black Week and it helps you see what the demands are and it helped us see those involved what Chuck was talking about because we had no black professors to help us. We didn't have any black literature courses, black theater. How can you not have black theater? You know, so Black Week was a was a cultural a cultural happening as well as a political happening. Amir Baraka, Fannie Lou Hamer. These, uh, these were uh, important figures uh, in uh, the black cultural and black political uh, milieu of the time. And what they said when they got here was very supportive of what we were trying to do, even, even when we weren't sure what it was we were trying to do at the time. And that uh, galvanized us for what was to come uh, soon. That was occupier Michael McBride. Along with a black theater and black art, a black boutique and a black magazine, during Black Week, the Afro-American Society brought to campus activist and comedian Dick Gregory, who spoke at Cameron Indoor Stadium on February 10th 
and even accompanied the students to another meeting at Knight's home. At Cameron, he didn't hold back. This is the most morally polluted, degenerate, insane nation on the face of this earth, born none. When you get to the point where you upset the capitalist, where he gonna lose some money, you run around, there's all these people run around here talking about, we just show doing a lot for the colored man. Nobody doing nothing for us. We was out here marching under the Constitution. We didn't do nothing but get kicked in our butt and shot in our head. When them niggas start burning that property down, the capitalists say, give them what they want. So I say to you youngsters, as you work to change this system, please let your number one point of order be these colleges and universities across this country. Please change them immediately. It insults me to have white America ask black folks to be nonviolent. She owns the mightiest Navy, the mightiest Army, the mightiest Air Force, owns all the police, state police, federal police, local police, sheriff's police, CIA, FBI, and she comes to us with all them guns and we ain't got a damn thing, and she says, be nonviolent, boy, we say you go to hell. Maybe not hell, but the Allen building for sure. Gregory was ready for something to happen. So were the students. Duke archivist Amy McDonald noted that even the Chronicle seemed to know something was up, showing an article from two days before the takeover. So this is the article from the Chronicle um, around the time that Dick Gregory came to visit from February 11th, and it says, Black is beautiful. Um, so this was during um, Black Week. The Chronicle is reporting on his conversation, and Dick Gregory says at one point, which is the mark of degeneracy, stealing drawers or taking over the administration building? So I've kind of always wondered, like, did they tell him? that this was like in the offing, you know? They definitely did, says then-staffer Mark Pinsky. In the days before cell phones and laptops, Duke had made its news bureau telephones and typewriters available to reporters. A number of us sat around and felt like the message of the, of the, of the vigil had been, uh, had been hijacked by the university, mainly because they made their, the news bureau made itself available for the out-of-town journalists, and by doing that, they controlled the narrative. So we decided if anything like this happened again, we'd control the narrative. So I met with Chuck Hopkins, who was then president of the Afro-American Society, and said, how can we take over the, the, the narrative? And so we agreed, he was a friend of mine, and he, he trusted us, and we agreed that when they went in, we were never sure exactly when they were gonna go in, he would give us a heads up so we would know in advance. We would mobilize our staff on the third floor of Flowers Building, and then as the, um, as the out-of-town people came in, which we assumed that they would, we would make third floor of third floor of flowers, their headquarters. We'd make our typewriters and our people to some extent and our telephones available to them. Planning meetings had been going on for some time. And note, remember the apartment the housing office unwillingly found for Charles Beckton? That's where they met. I do remember a meeting uh, at the house on, I think, on Markham, where, uh, where we discussed uh, going to the building. The final plans uh, were, were laid that we would arrive early in the morning, that we would ex exit uh, the back of a truck, that we would uh, clear the building. Uh, I think there had been some uh, practice. I remember a brief discussion on uh, whether we should take weapons. And uh, it was Chuck's position and, and mine that we should that we should not. Chuck was concerned that we keep the focus on the demands, that we not do anything that would give anyone an excuse to not address our demands. My concern was that uh, I thought we might die. Uh, now it, it, that was it, mine too. I thought we might die, and I thought, 
if we had guns, I was certain that we would die, and we would not even have sympathy on our side. So I, I was against uh, bringing guns into the building. But everybody didn't feel that way. But we didn't take guns in. Right. <laughs> no guns, no violence. That was the approach from the start. The group notified the Chronicle and rented a truck. Charles Beckton. Several students actually slept on the floor in my apartment. Others just got there at the, the appointed time to jump on the bus, the truck rather. Other students who did not come to East Campus or to my apartment hung out on, on the quad on, on West Campus. And once the truck arrived and people started pouring out of the truck, those people also started rushing into Allen Building. We had a timetable. The building had been scouted before. We had a diagram of the building. Uh, we knew what time the vault was going to open, and we, we knew what how much time it would take. Chuck Hopkins. Well, we went into the building. The first thing, of course, we did, we secured the building. The first thing I saw was some of the secretaries way down the hall quickly leaving the building. And I said that was good because one of the things we emphasized in our strategy meeting was, I mean, not only were we, you know, we weren't going to bring any arms into the building, we made that decision clear, but we also we weren't going to touch anybody. Our thing was don't give the administration an excuse not to focus on the issues we were trying to raise. But when I saw that secretary's fleeing the building, um, that was a good thing. In our planning and our walkthroughs, we had, we had actually timed it in terms of how much time we would need to secure the building. We had practiced that. And I was pleased that when we actually did it on the 13th, we, uh, we beat our time. <laughs> this took us uh, one minute and 59 seconds. They barricaded everything. Those are the voices of several female students who left the building midday and could provide live details to Duke radio station WDBS about what was going on inside. The most important thing for the students was that despite rumors that immediately swirled, as they entered the building, they made no threats and used no violence. They have no firearms. No, no firearms. Nothing like that. Were you with them when they walked in this morning? We came in the front door. There wasn't any physical violence. All that secretary and the man, they lied. We escorted them out. They walked on their own two feet. They roped the doors off. They chained the boards up. I mean, put chains on the door. They boarded the doors up with, you know, boards and nails. Students spoke through windows to WDBS. There's been reports of violence and that you live did a person out of the place? No, they walked out on their own. They were even given time to get their own coats. How did we put, throw them out then? The students quickly reached out to get their demands to the administration. The building is secure. I got on the phone, called Dean Griffith, and said, Dean Griffith, this is Chuck Hopkins, chairman of the Afro-American Society. We've just uh, taken over the administration building. Uh, uh, we're in here now, and these are the demands. I read him the 11 demands. Uh, Bill Griffith sort of, he sort of uh, stuttered a little bit, and he finally said, okay, Chuck, I'll get back to you. The demands included an Afro-American studies department, black dorms, student activities, and advisors, all organized with student participation, more black students, and admission standards to achieve that goal, and union rights for university workers. Eventually, the students added amnesty for protesters and students who had failed out to the list. At we first, the smoothness of the initial takeover had the students elated. Charles Beckton. And I think there was a feeling among, of accomplishment, of joy. 
uh, about what we had done uh, and the statement we were about to make. We felt that it was a good strategic move today. We felt that our timing was right, right after Black Week. Everything's coming off smoothly now. feel that we, it has proved that the time was right. All right, and uh, what do you plan to do as far as waiting out the demands? We plan to stay here until the university concedes to our demands or offer us something better at this institution. At this time, we have nothing offered us at this institution but a white man's education, which has no relevance to us here and now. Students in the building communicated with partners outside who could speak publicly. What we all hope to accomplish by, uh, uh, you might say, season a part of Allen Building this morning, uh, we just uh, got rented a U-Haul truck and brought a few people over and sneaked them in. And that's, that's all there was to it. Uh, this is supposed to be a sort of a power play. We have to have something, you know, if we're going to try to make some demands upon the university. With nothing, you know, you don't have anything to, uh, no inner ground to bargain from. Since years of discussion preceded the occupation, the students were in no rush to leave. So uh, they told me just to tell you that everything was going well and that they're prepared to stay for quite a while. They didn't expect confrontation recalls Janice Williams. We actually went in with the mindset that they were going to make us uh, suffer, they were going to leave us in there, we would be in there a number of days uh, because they would um, hope that we'd be hungry or you know, things that parents tend to do for younger children is where our mindset was, not that they would call armed uh, police. Though nobody was playing games. We've been knowing for, for two and a half years. And today it's going to stop one way or the other. Charles Beckton. It was only later in the afternoon when it became clear after the negotiations were about to begin uh, that no negoti negotiations were going to take place until we left the building uh, and that the police had been called that things get really tense. Durham activist Howard Fuller, who had provided guidance to the students, eventually joined them in the building. White students met on the quad and in the chapel, eventually surrounding the Allen Building in support. Students from NC Central showed up in solidarity. And the students in the building believed they might accomplish something great. Chuck Hopkins. Later on in the day, they were, they were asking us to send representatives to another room in Allen Building and negotiate some things. And we were kind of making progress on that because they were at least talking about the issues that we had in our demand. It, at one point during the afternoon, it looked like something would come out of that, but then President Knight returned because he was away that day also. And he returned to campus, and President Knight's position was, uh, as long as they're in the building, we're not negotiating. So that ended, so that, that ended that. Duke issued an ultimatum demanding the students leave, and fearful of a confrontation with police, some did. They've been issued an ultimatum, right? Yes. yes. Uh, who issued that? Mr. Hobbs, the provost of the university. And how did you finally get out of the room? They didn't let you through that door, I'm sure. No, we came through a window. We were lowered out of window. We lowered out a window. That's correct. The students who left were lowered out windows because once they had barricaded the building from within, the university had locked the doors from without. Simply walking out the doors was no longer an option. When the day began, President Knight was in New York on a fundraising trip. He returned to campus just in time to enter a hastily called faculty meeting in Baldwin Auditorium at 4 p.m. A small group of faculty had been lobbying all day. Our, our object was to see if it was possible to prevent the bringing of police onto campus. 
Uh, we were assured at that time that there was no thought of doing so. Uh, we tried to make it perfectly clear and made it very explicit the consequences that would occur on, ca on campus if this were done. Yet police were already on their way to Duke Gardens as faculty met at 4. We had about uh, 15, 10 or 15 minutes to go before the ultimatum was to expire at that point. Uh, we then rose and offered a motion that the uh, faculty of Duke University uh, request and direct the president and provost to suspend the force uh, of that statement until our deliberations were concluded. There was, uh, at that point, as I say, a great deal of urgency since time was running out. The president, at one point uh, after that, uh, said that even if the motion passed, uh, there are occasions when machinery is set in motion and so forth, and the university would, would not necessarily be bound by the motion, even if it were passed. Machinery set in motion and so forth. Since the recommendation would have no effect, the minority of faculty supporting the students moved to adjourn the meeting. Motion overwhelmingly defeated. Point, uh, I understand some 35 faculty members walked out. Uh, amid the jeering uh, hisses and uh, derisory applause of a large number of our colleagues. I see. So, uh, there is a report that the police have already organized and formed. So they had County Sheriff's Department, Durham City Police, North Carolina State Highway Patrol are massed, some 70 to 100 strong, in the Duke Gardens parking lot, awaiting orders. Remember that many of the protesting students had left the Allen Building when the university issued the ultimatum. Those who remained knew the police were coming, and they had decisions to make. They're now lining up. They've gotten out of their cars. Each man has a club, a gun, and he's wearing his protective helmet. They seem to be ready to move out now, and we'll try to follow along with them. Tension within the building had by then begun to rise. Michael LeBlanc. The school gave us, I think, three ultimatums. It, wa it wasn't just one. And at the first ultimatum, a number of students decided to leave. Okay. And then uh, there was still, as the, this was maybe around 1 o'clock, when you got to the 3 o'clock time frame, uh, there was another um, group that decided to go. More students left, again out the window. It, it changed during the course of the day. Uh, and as it got darker, the consequences physically got more serious, or the threat of the consequences got more serious. And there was a contingent that was absolutely committed to, we should not leave the building. That is put in the context of the state police, highway patrol, whatever, coming in. They were coming in. It was, hey, we got an excuse to take them out now. Then we got uh, word from, I think, the Chronicle, um, the, the, the athletes that were on the walkie-talkies walkie saying yeah. they are amassing in the Duke Gardens and it's a whole bunch of them, and they come. Mass troopers are now starting to march through the gardens. They are all armed with clubs, uh, three tear gas guns, uh, foggers that I can count, a couple of riot guns. Each man, of course, has his pistol, and they're all equipped with a gas mask. The remaining students took a final vote. Counting the votes was Charles Becton, law student and, significantly, 
oldest of the protesters. He made what in retrospect was a wise decision. So on the next vote, uh, and I was counting, uh, the vote was 13 to stay, 12 to leave. Got it, okay. But I reported that as just the opposite. He lied. <laughs> I was, and, and, and I tell was us, older than them by about five or six years. Tell us, why you, tell us why you lied, brother. To save us from dying. Yes. Precisely. I am so glad he lied. <laughs> Man. Hey, let me, uh... With the police on the way to the building's back door, Becton misrepresented the vote. Based on that, the students quickly made their way out the front door, which they could do because of a remarkable coincidence. When I went out the window, I was terrified because when they said, y'all need to leave, you know what that was. They're saying, okay, if we're going to die, or we're going to be hurt, or we got to fight, y'all got to go. So when I went out, fortunately, and y'all know how fate is, I ran into one of the security. Back when I was there, we had a curfew. If you came on East Campus Women's College past the curfew, you had to go to security to get in your dorm. A security guard that had met me and thought I was the nicest person had came to me and he said, what's going on? And I said, we're trying to get out the building. And we can't get out the building because the administration has locked us in. Those big wooden doors were locked. So even when we unbarricaded what we had done, we were still locked in the building. And he grabbed his key, but he opened up the door that faced Perkins. And uh, I was so glad to see y'all come out. I could have just laid down and died. I'm telling Before you. they left, the protesters took an action that serves as a reminder that they were, after all, college students. Catherine LeBlanc remembers. Uh, on the first vote to stay was when we prepared for the incoming of the police and we started to put butts of cigarettes in our noses. The, fil the filters. The filters. The filters, the filters of the uh, cigarettes in our noses. And we had been told that if we squeeze lemon juice on our eyes, that it will help to deal with the tear gas. And so that was the visual of what we looked like during that time when we had taken the vote to stay. And after we took the second vote, and um, Becton so graciously saved our lives, we decided to come out of the building. These were students standing up for their rights, fiercely, bravely. Well, if a man's gonna send 85 or 70 cops on a bunch of flimsy things he thinks that are happening on inside, I don't think at the moment we can say that we're gonna get them. But I can say this much, we're gonna fight all the way to the end to get them, or we're gonna leave this goddamn rat hole. <laughs> Yet brave and fierce, they were college students. Michael LeBlanc. Um, back then, people used to smoke a lot, so they had these trash cans, black trash cans with the silver top. So I remember taking, we took the silver top off and put it on, there was two or three women that stayed. They were not leaving either. And we put it on top of their heads. So if you ever looked at it, we had filters coming out our nose, Lemon in your eye, crying, and a silver <laughs> ashtray on the top. And we were ready to fight the man. You know, it, it was um, naive, uh, foolhardy, and funny. In retrospect, perhaps, at the time, it was deadly serious. 
Recognizing that seriousness, the students chose to avoid the threatening conflict. Surprisingly enough, as the police amassed in the gardens, we just been informed that the black students vacated the administration building, and they have begun marching down campus drive away from the chapel. Blacks marched to the end of the drive and then massed at the end of the circle. Uh, the, the police was coming in the door that faced campus drive, as we were coming out of the uh, building facing Perkins Library. And our recollection is that they came in throwing t tear gas. They were uh, coming out with uh, jackets and stuff over their heads, probably to uh, prevent pictures from being taken of uh -huh. themselves. Right. And they were marching down away from the, uh, the chapel, and they were saying, uh, what, what were they saying? They were saying, it's not over. It's Hell no, it's not over. Hell no, it's not over. Uh, they got about halfway between uh, the chapel and the gates when three police cars came down, mildly struck a girl, a black girl. They were surrounded by blacks from NCC, and uh, as they were marching down, all yelling, hell no, it's not over. Yeah. And uh, then they hit the car uh, with whatever they had in their hands. One car? Just uh, one car? All three of them. Okay. And then they turned around, and... They followed the police cars back toward Allen Building. At the same time, the, uh, high, the highway patrol and the Durham police moved in from uh, in the back of Allen Building. And closed off Allen Building, right? Closed off Allen Building completely. With They're now standing out there uh, in front of the door. Uh, the students are all around them. Some have, uh, at first, were throwing things. The black uh, students? Yeah. Right. No, white and black. And... Uh, they were yelling, Zig Heil. Exactly when and why the tear gassing started has never been clear. But the white students challenged the police and... All right, listen, they've gassed the place. Aftermath, uh, you all have seen the pictures of what was going on on campus uh, between the white students and the police. And that's when all the tear gas was being thrown. Uh, but we were already safely out of the building. Oh, boy. Cops that were... Uh standing outside of Allen Building, started throwing tear gas grenades into the students. The students are running away. They're throwing anything they can get their hands on. Let's throw about six or seven tear gas grenades. Okay. And it's just covering the, the uh, this is a quad, that, the part where the buses pull up. You know? Right. Now, uh, was there any provocation that you saw uh, that provoked them to throw the tear gas? There must have been something. Did anything happen? Not, th not that I, oh, got some of that stuff in my eyes. Okay, all I could... Yes. And all I could get is that the cops, that the students started sort of pushing in on the cops. Uh-huh. And that started, the cops just started throwing tear gas. Now, when you seem to you that the majority of the white students there are now sympathizing with the blacks? Oh, you better believe it. They're, so, in other words... I'm not sure if they're sympathizing with the blacks, but they're sure after the police. Wait a second. They're running around the campus, tear gassing everything in sight. They're running around outside the main quad in the bus circle, just throwing tear gas grenades right now. There goes a grenade right in front of us. Uh, the, the smoke I can see is pouring up out of it. Uh, several people are dispersing, running. Uh, the students evidently regrouped and charged again toward the police. The police then retaliated with the gas, and uh, I can... For more than an hour, West Campus was a maelstrom. Debbie Fritz was a freshman then. Um, so I was young, right? I was just a freshman. It was my second semester. And um, I was walking home from Chem Lab, just walking back to get the bus over to East Campus. And there was something going on. And so I walked over, and, and the Allen building was being taken over. So 
along with other students, we stood around and speculated about what was going on. We heard a few things that it was black students and some of what their protests were. And um, while I was standing there, police got hysterical, I guess. I don't know. They charged us. I'm just standing there. And it tear gassed us. I could see the police were panicked. You could tell they were. They were lashing out at everybody. Duke hung in the balance. Police continued to shoot tear gas. Students ran back and forth across the quad. I hear two or three grenades go off. There's lights on all outside in front of here now. As the students once again are charging inside the building, uh, there's another smoke bomb going off right between uh, here and Allen building in that quad. There went something. I couldn't tell exactly what that was. Uh, there's... But just as the decision to bring police on campus probably made conflict inevitable, decisions the students had made began to assert themselves, too. The black students had decided not to bring weapons into the building, so there were no weapons. The black students had left the building to try to avoid a violent confrontation. So when that confrontation occurred, instead of an identifiable group of a few dozen black students to engage with, the police faced a shifting mob of a thousand bodies and they eventually returned to the Allen Building. Those are police. They're heading back toward Allen Building. Uh, just police right at the moment out there. A violent confrontation was almost inevitable from the moment the police arrived on campus. Perhaps from the moment the students took over the building. Perhaps from the moment President Knight refused to leave the country club. We've been meeting for two and a half years on the, late, on the oldest demands, nothing had come of them. Six months on the most recent demands, nothing has happened. And today, the university again refused to meet with us when we asked them to while we were in there. So we knew then that they wanted a confrontation, a violent confrontation. And I hope they've gotten what they wanted. And you, did you, can you tell me please, did you walk out to avoid a violent confrontation? Yes. Uh, there's, uh, evidently, there still is a lot of activity going on out there, which is the understatement of the year. Uh, I can't see from my vantage point exactly what is going on down there. Uh, I see a lot of smoke flowing around, but I, at this moment I can't exactly describe what is going on for the, uh, for the windows are just to my left, and or the activity is just to the left of the windows, and I can't see around that corner. It never got much easier to say exactly what happened. As the campus calmed, responses began. Meetings occurred in Page Auditorium that evening and over the coming few days, outlining university responses and demonstrating that little was resolved. We used to have a faculty here, or something that called itself a faculty, but they sullied themselves by selling out to this structure today when they gave Douglas Knight a blank check to bring the pigs in here on top of us. And don't you forget it. You know how they act, you know. And I question their humanity. I really do, having called the police into this university to attack first an empty building and second... And having, after having victoriously conquered the empty building, they turned to the spectators who were watching and decided that they ought to conquer them. And so we played tag around the quad. Although we left Allen Building this evening, at this point, our main aim is to intensify the struggle that we have begun. We're going to intensify the struggle. And, and Knights running around the damn country trying to get more money, billions of dollars for 
for the, for, for the university. He lives in a $350,000 home himself. People out in the community, people, human beings, living in poor, dilapidated homes. We walked in there, man, we were like sinking in that carpet out there. And here was this pig, this fat, sloppy, greasy pig, sitting there lavishing and all his wealth. Or didn't that cat himself say that uh, once you bring them pigs on campus, you ain't got no control over them? They knew that before they brought them on here. They knew that. Why is the administration and the board of trustees uptight about 13 demands that relate to people being people? You know why? Why? First of all, because they're black people. First of all, because they're black people. And understand that. First of all, because they're black people. And second of all, because they are beginning to act in their self-interest. In other words, they're beginning to understand how America operates. Damn. If they're getting that, why ain't I got something to do with America? The aftermath of the takeover and conflict, if less violent, was just as intense. The protesters had raised questions at Duke that would not recede into the background. Duke's pivot had begun. On part three of Pivot Point. This sort of action, this sort of aggressive action, is no way in which to resolve a problem. It simply compounds it. It worked, because we, we basically got a tap on the back of our hands as far as punishment. Long live Malcolm X. This afternoon, March 27th, Dr. Douglas Knight, president of Duke University, announced his resignation. History grabbed us by the lapels and shook us. I had no sustained political consciousness. I was a middle-class suburban Jewish kid when I came here. And I left a much different person that's shaped my, my whole life. This has been part two of Pivot Point three-part series on the 1969 Allen Building Takeover, produced by The Devil's Share, the podcast of Duke Magazine. Please visit our website at sites.duke.edu slash devilsshare for the other parts of this series, photos, and links.